This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and all the men and women that were incarcerated there. My name is Anthony, and I'm speaking to Sky in Texas. Hi. Hello. Hello, hello. Well, you survived another week in graduate <laughs> school, and I'd, uh, quite an exciting barely, week. honestly. <laughs> Yeah, the this month is uh, the month of February, which we're releasing this in uh, not February, has been insanely busy. So uh, this week, I keep being like, okay, next week is totally going to slow down, and then next week comes, and I'm like, it's not slowing down. Yeah. Like, so like today, I'm like, oh, next week will slow down, and I just don't think it will. I I don't know why I'm in denial. I've been in graduate school before, and I know it doesn't <laughs> slow down, but I'm just in denial about it. Yeah, yeah. I get that. I I always yeah. think that. I'm like, oh, this is my slow period. Like, I just finished a bunch of gigs and, you know, everything dies out. And this is when it's just I'm inundated with all kinds of weird little side jobs and things. And then it's, like, oh, mm. no, why do I keep saying yes? I've said yes too much. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like yeah. the busy time. Then it's October and we're working at the old pen on Bright and Felons. and. <laughs> Oh, we had our first like frightened felons meeting today and that was oh. I can't even it's it's February and we're already discussing our giant Halloween event and you know that's how yeah. that's why it's so great every year. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> it is. It is a lot of fun. Like I went one year before I was working there and it was like nothing but a good time. And then I worked there and I still didn't even mind it. Yeah. JC didn't make me work in the haunted house, so I was very happy about that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've I actually really wanna work in the haunted house. So I'm I'm vying for it. I'm trying to get my way in there. <laughs> I like to scare people. That's fun. <laughs> I the thing that I will just like will always endear me to that haunted house is when we were cleaning it up and you were like, Sky, what's your favorite share album? And I told you and you played it for me and we listened to it as we cleaned it up and <laughs> yeah. I thought that was so nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was the first time I like purposefully listened to Cher. So <laughs> it was You know a- what? I'll take it. It was a good album. It's a good album. Yeah. yeah Heart yeah, of Stone. Yeah. So great. 80 uh 85, 80 I don't even know. Yeah. 80s. 80s was her best decade. That's all I'll say. Yeah. It was a perfect soundtrack to clean up like, you know, parts of bodies and ghosts and yeah. gremlins and ghouls and things. So. <laughs> oh, those like pictures that change when you walk by and yeah. like Oh man. So fun. Come to the haunted house in October, everyone. Yeah, definitely. What are we gonna talk about today? So I will start it off. You have quite the uh 
the story to tell us. Um, oh, mine my. is not quite as long and or quite as exciting, but there is actually some really uh, interesting stuff. So I am going to talk about number 11630, Phyllis May Mink. Oh. So... Sources, uh, her inmate file, Ancestry.com, TravelWyoming.com, EasternShoshone.org, U-S-History.com, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, IdahoPotatoMuseum.com, www.2.sbtribes.com, which is the Shoshone-Bannock official tribal website. And then uh, just a little bit of uh, information on Wikipedia. So, as you may have guessed from <laughs> from my sources, uh, Phyllis May Mink was born Phyllis May Ute. She was a Shoshone Native American, born on August 23, 1939, born at Fort Washakie, Wyoming, which is part of the Wind River Reservation. The Wind River Reservation is home of the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho Native American tribes. There are about 27,000 residents on about 3,500 square miles of land, and that's of recently. Um, I'm not sure what the numbers were back when Phyllis, uh, around the time Phyllis would have been born. So she was the daughter of uh, Pony Ute and Laura Ute, who was born Laura Tillman. Both of her parents were Shoshone Native Americans who lived on the Wind River Reservation. Her mother had married twice before. She had three kids from her first marriage and two kids from her second marriage, so Phyllis was actually her sixth child. Pony and Laura had two kids together, Phyllis and then Phyllis's little brother, Lyle. And her parents divorced when Phyllis was about three years old and Lyle wasn't even a full year yet. Her father remarried and had four kids. Her mother remarried and had two more kids. And so Phyllis had 12 siblings in total, with 11 of them being half-siblings in some combination. So to say that her childhood was fairly unstable is um, kind of putting it lightly. After her parents' divorce, Phyllis and Lyle actually go to live with their paternal grandmother. And and their grandmother, they live in, in Wyoming. Uh, her grandmother dies in 1949 when Phyllis is about 10 years old. So again, they're uprooted and they go to live with their father and their stepmother in Blackfoot, Idaho, where he had moved after he had divorced Laura. Mm. Phyllis is 10, Lyle is about 8. They up and move to Idaho from from Wyoming, uh, where they'd lived their whole lives. From what I can tell, their life was fine, kind of with their stepmother and their father and their half-siblings. Unfortunately, in 1953, Phyllis's father dies by suicide. Oh. Um, he there's a, There wasn't anywhere in the file that talked about why he might have, but he did unfortunately, complete suicide in 1953, so she would have been about 14, 13 or 14 years old is all. She lived then with her stepmother. I wasn't sure why she never went to live with her mother. I don't know if it was sort of a choice, if the father was granted custody. By this time, her mother obviously had remarried and was, was I believe, in... in uh, they, I think they may have been in Blackfoot, actually. They may have also moved there. So I'm not sure why she didn't live with her mother, but she and Lyle stayed with their stepmother. 
1954, um, because she sort of had started to uh, act up after her father's death, she was sent to the St. Anthony Industrial School for constant truancy. She didn't really care about school. She didn't want to go, and so she didn't go. So she was sent to St. Anthony uh, in 1954. She was placed on parole in 1956, so she was there about a year and a half to two years. There is one report within her inmate file that stated that she was there from 1952 to 1954, but all the other reports, uh, including the official one from St. Anthony, said it was 54 to 56. So I don't really know why that other one was wrong, but I think it's fairly certain that it is 54 to 56. So by the time she gets out, she's about 15, 16-ish. So she goes back to Blackfoot High School. She attends until 10th grade. So she probably was only there for about a year, if that, after she was released from St. Anthony. She said she actually liked school, but she, quote, quit due to goofing off. And so she didn't go back to high school. Upon moving to Blackfoot, they leave, uh, she and Lyle leave the Wind River Reservation, and now they are growing up on and or near Fort Hall Reservation. So here's a little bit of history. I don't think I um, have talked about the Fort Hall Reservation before. And so the Fort Hall Reservation is the home of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. The Shoshone and Bannock tribes entered into peace treaties in 1863 and 1868 with the Fort Bridger Treaty, which basically parceled off the reservation and said, this is your land, you can live here, which is ridiculous because their land is so much bigger than the the piece of, of land that the government parceled off. But this is unfortunately the reality that has happened. The Native Americans uh, got a fraction of a fraction of, frankly, what they deserve. So they were living on uh, the Fort Hall Reservation, and then the tribes organized under the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, which was passed under FDR. The tribes operate under a constitution which was approved on April 30th, 1936, and ratified by the tribes in 1937. They call themselves the Shoshone-Bannock Tribes, but it's all sort of like one organization. So they say that the Shoshone-Bannock Tribes is a federally recognized, fully sovereign nation and act under the bylaws of that 1936-1937 constitution. The reservation currently comprises of about 814 square miles. And if you want to learn more about the Shoshone-Bannock Tribes and the Fort Hall Reservation, please, please check out www2, the number two, dot sbtribes.com. It's a wonderful website with lots of resources about current events, governments, business within the tribes. They have the the governing council that they uh, that was set up under that constitution. Uh, they have all the current members of that. Um, you, if you have questions, you can contact them. It's a really, really wonderful website. I definitely recommend it. And I, I was so interested in it. We just, I don't know anything about the Native Americans, uh, and especially not Native Americans from their own perspective. Right. Yeah, it is. It's a great resource. And there's a lot of material on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely very useful if you want to know more. So, you know, growing up on the Fort Hall Reservation, she doesn't really have a job after she quits school, at least one that she lists. And the only job that she lists, actually, is that at 18 years old, she started working in a laundry. And in fact, when she comes into the prison, she lists her occupation as a clothes sorter. 
About six months after starting work, she got married. This would have been about 1957. Um, she married Floyd Von Kobe on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation in Fort Hall, Idaho. I believe this was a common law marriage that had been finalized. Um, I couldn't I couldn't find a marriage certificate for them. And within this common law marriage, I think even before it was official, they had two sons, Wayland and Legrand. They divorced in 1959. Floyd Vaughn is actually the one who asked for the divorce, claiming desertion and cruelty on Phyllis's part. So I don't know the situation behind that, but the divorce was so absolute that Phyllis actually resumed her former last name. Floyd Vaughn didn't want her, uh, and maybe she didn't want to keep the last name of Kobe. Floyd Vaughn also got the two sons, Wayland and Legrand. Here's a crazy fun fact that I did not put together until I was doing redoing research. Floyd Vaughn was also married to another Idaho State Penitentiary inmate, number 12362 Shirley Ann Boise, no. who entered the yes, yes. What? They entered the peni- she entered the penitentiary in 1967. She was one of our last inmates to enter before the women's ward shut down. Wow. Right? Oh my gosh. I and it's f- the Oh, man, I was, like, so excited about... <laughs> I was just so excited when I found that out. Because I, I think Shirley Ann Boise was, like, one of the first ones I'd ever done. Or it was actually one of the ones that was done before I even started the project. Uh-huh. And so I think I clicked on his record on Ancestry.com, and it was, like, Shirley Boise Kobe. And I was like, wait a minute. <sighs> and it was her. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Crazy. I love that. That's the fun of being a researcher. So if anyone wants that mm-hmm. like cheap thrill, go do your own it's, ancestry and find these crazy connections in your lives. <laughs> it's significant. It's it's surprisingly thrilling. Yeah. To be like, oh my gosh, it all connects. Yeah, really. <laughs> it's really it's really nerdy. <laughs> so, um, 1959, the same year that Floyd Vaughn and Phyllis get divorced, Phyllis also starts to have trouble with the law. In June 1959, she is arrested in Reno, Nevada for drunkenness. She had the choice between being fined $30 or kept 30 days in jail. I think she may have paid the 30 because it didn't it actually didn't specify what she did. In February 1960, she is arrested in Pocatello for disorderly conduct. It was a $50 bond that was then forfeited. Wow. Earlier, though, in 1959, I think kind of toward the end of the year, Phyllis um, had also gotten into a common-law marriage with a man named Oscar Mink. He was an ex-Navy man, and they were married in Fort Hall, Idaho. Early to mid-1960, there I couldn't find an official date, she had a daughter, Cheryl Ann, who was born, and then in November 1962, her daughter Virginia was born. So uh, about 10 months after Virginia was born, her youngest daughter was born, she was arrested and charged with a no-account check. The details of this no-account check are unknown. Judge Ezra P. Johnson placed her on probation for three years in November 1963. And this getting placed on this probation in November 1963 probably felt... A little bit like be, like being kicked while she was down because a month before that, in October 1963, Oscar, Phyllis, Cheryl Ann, Virginia, Phyllis's brother, whose name was Don Ute, and a sister named Sandra Osborne, they were going on a drive. 
and Oscar is driving on a road about seven miles south of Blackfoot. We don't know where they were going or, or what they were doing, but everyone's piled in the car. And there's a sharp turn in the road. And right after the sharp turn is a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was dark. I think it was night. And when Oscar came around the sharp turn, he somehow missed the bridge and instead he slipped into an irrigation canal um and so kind of went off the side of the bridge the car plunged into nine feet of water and phyllis is able to unroll the window and she swims out to the surface don and sandra uh do something similar they all survive as well but unfortunately oscar cheryl ann and virginia all drowned Oh my God! So Virginia was was uh, a year old, uh, just about, and and Cheryl Ann would have been about three. Oh, and so just an absolute tragedy. That's like so I can't, sad. I can't even imagine oh having to go through that, um, and especially being the survivor. Yeah. Um, you know, survivor's guilt, and what she would have gone through trying to deal with with those emotions. I just, just horrible. So, understandably, she is inconsolable about this event, and so it really starts to affect her and her drinking habits. She stated that she had no recreational interest except, quote, hanging around bars and drinking. She had actually been arrested again uh, in August 1963 before the car accident, and she had been arrested in Blackfoot for drunk and disorderly, and she paid a $25 fine for that. So she kind of already had a habit, and then um, losing her entire family exacerbated the situation. So we are going to pause in this very sad moment in Phyllis's life, and we're going to talk a little bit about Blackfoot. We haven't talked about Blackfoot yet. Blackfoot is about 20 miles north of Pocatello in southeastern Idaho. The area was named Blackfoot by the French fur traders of the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, It was named after the Blackfeet natives that they had met in 1818, and there was a legend that their moccasins were blackened after fires had... I don't want to say destroyed, but sort of ravaged the area in about 1812. And so everywhere they walked, this this black soot would get on their moccasins. But to sort of, I don't know if it was to sort of go along with that legend or if they did this first and then sort of this legend popped up around it, but they actually just either dyed or painted the soles of their shoes black. So I don't think it really had anything to do with that large fire. Most Blackfeet Native Americans are currently from the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, which is in Montana, but there's also tribal members in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia, Canada, which again sort of gives you the scope of where Native Americans lived. It wasn't, you know, obviously they weren't parceled into the U.S. and Canada, like it was just all land. Mm-hmm. So the first white settlers in the Blackfoot area was in 1866, and they started farming and ranching. Then the Utah Northern Railroad expanded into the Blackfoot area, which then obviously helped the area to grow. On January 13, 1885, Blackfoot was named the county seat of the newly formed Bingham County. So originally, the county seat was supposed to be Eagle Rock, which, if you remember from last season, was the original name for Idaho Falls. But the night before legislation, the legislation to officially name Eagle Rock as the county seat, 
was supposed to be signed, apparently men from Blackfoot bribed a clerk to erase Eagle Rock and write in Blackfoot. This is sort of a a rumor. The origin of this accusation actually arose several years after the event by a Blackfoot newspaper editor. It's more likely and not surprising that the fight for the Bingham County seat was a political battle involving sectional and anti-Mormon factions in the Idaho legislature. Most of, of South Idaho is was heavily settled by Mormon settlers. And so as we kind of talked about in, I believe it was sort of episode zero, where we talk about the history of Idaho and the prison, mm-hmm. um, that that there was a large anti-Mormon faction. And that's why we have the laws of like cohabitation laws yeah, to I'm sort of fight polygamy. Yeah. The anti-Mormon faction was led by Fred T. Boy, who we talked a little bit about in that same episode. He had settled in Blackfoot in 1880, and he was not a fan of, of the LDS population out there. Dubois was the U.S. Marshal for the Idaho Territory, and then he ran as a Republican for a Senate seat on an anti-Mormon platform. Those unlawful cohabitation laws that he sort of created really filled Idaho jails and the state penitentiary. Yeah. So... That was all sort of in in the Blackfoot area. Also, in 1885, the Idaho legislature set aside $20,000 in bonds to establish the territory's first insane asylum in Blackfoot, which then became State Hospital South. And it is still there. It's still in operation. Then in 1889, a U.S. land office was established in Blackfoot, and that is uh, that was during the late 1800s and, and early 1900s. As people started to move west, they started to homestead, and that's what land offices were for, where people would go to the land office and basically get a homesteading property and set out to do that process. And um, we talked a little bit about, about this in season one, but basically... If you homesteaded, you came, you got the land, I believe, for free. And the only stipulation was that you had to stay on it for three years that I Mm -hmm. think may have gotten up to five years at some point. As long as you just took care of the land for however, three to five years, then it was yours. And then you could do whatever you wanted with it. In the first three months of the U.S. land office being in Blackfoot, about 300 homesteads were processed. So that also helped get a lot of people out there in the area. And then on May 7th, 1907, the land office became the registration office when the Fort Hall Reservation, quote unquote, opened to white settlement. Hmm. This is something that unfortunately did happen, but basically it was sort of the government thinking that this was their land to take, sort of like they always did. And so they opened the land to white settlement and several thousand homesteaders rushed to Blackfoot to stake a claim on native lands dispossessing the Shoshone-Bannock natives even more than they already were. But Blackfoot is currently very culturally significant in the state. Bingham County is the largest potato-growing county in the state. Blackfoot apparently is known as the potato capital of the world, so go Blackfoot. There's more to Idaho than potatoes, but there is a potato museum in Idaho. <laughs> but I, well, and it's in Blackfoot. It's, it's uh, so cool. It's home to the Idaho Potato Museum, and it's actually hosted in the site of the old Oregon Shortline Railroad Depot. Oh. Um, y- you'll know that it is the museum because there is a giant fake baked potato outside. Yeah. 
It also has a gift shop full of potato themed things, a cafe with all things potatoes,、oh、and、gosh. on the website,、um, which is、uh, just IdahoPotatoMuseum.com, there's lots of links with like all sort of potato facts. So if you want to know about potatoes,、yeah. like go check it out. I've actually never been to the Potato Museum, but I should go. I think it's mandatory for Idahoans to have the Idaho Potato <laughs> Museum as their homepage、uh, in their internet browsers.、So. <laughs> It is. It just、yeah. kind of comes on all Idaho computers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a. It's an automatic thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you know this, I think, because when I first found it, I like wouldn't shut up about it.、Um, but there's the potato, the old fake potato that used to go around on the Idaho potato truck, that they have now turned into an Airbnb that you can stay in for two hundred dollars a night. Yeah. And apparently, there's also a cow named Dolly that like roams around outside of it. I want. To go there, so bad, but I can't find anyone to do it with me, so I'm upset about it. What? You can't find anybody. I know、oh. someone. I the one person that I was like, you should do this, and she was like, maybe. Now she's like, I don't. You have fun, and I'm just like, but it would be so cool. Two hundred dollars anyway. A potato. It's. I feel like it is a lot, but it's、yeah. it's the novelty of it. You can、yeah. be like. Like when people are like you meet you know you meet like your new coworkers or like you're in class and they're like all right tell me a fun fact about you then you can be like I've slept in a potato and like no <laughs> one can say that. <laughs> I think that we're gonna have a lot of listeners who are gonna be booking a room soon in that potato. <laughs> you should and tell me how it is and also if you if you meet the cow named Dolly, I'm so jealous. Yeah, because that's amazing. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, off track. Blackfoot is also home to the Eastern Idaho Fair, which is the sister fair to the Western Idaho Fair, which is in Boise. This Eastern Idaho State Fair draws thousands of people to town in the first week of September every year. In 2017, it set an attendance record of 239,103. Wow.、Um, so that's a lot of people. Yeah. It has, you know, just like. Most other state fairs you go to has events like bull riding, motocross, horse races, a rodeo, tractor pulls, a demolition derby, and then they get concerts with pretty big names. So Joan Jett came, which I think she came to the Western Idaho Fair probably that same year. They've had the Offspring, they've had Jeff Boxworthy. So this is like a really big fair、yeah. um, that they have out there in Blackfoot. The population in 2010 was 11,899. The 2018 estimate was 11,964. Population has remained fairly steady. Okay, so that is Blackfoot. Now let's get back to Phyllis and、uh, why she ended up in prison. So let's come back to her. December twenty third, nineteen sixty three. This is about two months after her entire family drowned in a in a unfortunate car accident. She is still on probation. She was placed on probation the month before for three years. So she enters the spa bar where she had actually worked for a month. While she's there, sort of a. A free for all brawl breaks out. She gets in a in a she gets involved in this bar fight. I'm not sure if she was working or if she was there to just consume、um, on her own.、Uh, but there,、uh, a man in the fight. His name is George Lutterman, and apparently, she found they call it in the files a bar nightstick. I don't know what that is.、Uh, I mean, a nightstick is just basically a club,、yeah. but I don't know why it's specified as like a bar nightstick. But basically, she takes a solid object and beats him over the head with it,、oh. 
And so Letterman actually wanted to sign a complaint for assault with a deadly weapon. During the investigation of this crime, some things come out about Phyllis. Um, One is that she apparently has been having an affair with a married man from Blackfoot, which sort of had started before and after she was placed on probation. And then the rumor has it that she also had a reputation at the Grand Hotel in town of, quote, having different men in her room on different occasions, sometimes for the entire night. Hmm. To me kind of all of these things seem likely a result of the tragedy that had happened only two months before. I think in the fact that you lose your entire family, you try to turn to other things to try to sort of numb the pain. Uh, for her, it seems to be drink and and sex. I don't obviously encourage that behavior, but I also can't say that I blame her for trying to deal with it mm. any way that she can. It just happens to be a really unhealthy way. Right. So I don't know. The only time it ever says anything about this affair and and having men over in the hotel was basically just sort of while they were talking about this crime. So it was just sort of the sheriff, the town sheriff who mentioned it. So it, it didn't ever become too big of an issue in her life, but this is something that was claimed about her. So though Letterman wanted to charge her with assault with a deadly weapon, I think because it was a free-for-all, she was just charged with disturbing the peace. She pled not guilty to that crime, and so she was held in the Bingham County Jail awaiting a hearing. And while she was waiting, she escaped from jail and went on the run. No. Um, no details about how she escaped, but she she took off. This was the very end. Uh, I, I believe it was December 26th that she escaped uh, and went on the run. And eight days later, on January 2nd, 1964, she is found by Indian police in Chubbuck, Idaho, which is 23 miles south of Blackfoot. So kind of right around the Pocatello area. After her escape, she was then sent to jail from January 1964 to about April 1964. There's actually a record that says she came out in May 1964, but her crime says took place in April 1964. So it would have to have been at least April that she was out, if not before that. And upon her release from jail, she likely didn't have a lot of money. She had only worked at the bar for a month. And, and as far as I can tell, she didn't really do a lot of work. So here's her account of the crime that brings her finally into the penitentiary. So she had briefly been, been living in Ogden, Utah in April 1964. And she goes into an Ogden bar and she meets a couple men. One of the men's name is Len. There was no last name. And she couldn't remember the name of the other guy. And so she's drinking in there. She's getting to know these guys. And she claims that they give her some marijuana. And so she smokes that. She gets high. And then the three of them drive to Blackfoot about two hours away. In Blackfoot, she goes into the Blocks Men's Store, where she writes a check for $50, presumably from menswear for both of the men. I don't know why she would be in there buying something for herself. Hmm. So it does seem to sort of match up with this story. The problem in writing this $50 check is that she doesn't have any money in the account attached to that check. And so all three return to Ogden. She never sees the men again. And she was actually arrested. She was in Ogden uh, until August, uh, just sort of living her life. But she was arrested in Ogden on August 3rd, 1964, transported back to Blackfoot. She was tried and sentenced 
to three years in September uh, 1964 for a no-account check, and also that she had violated her probation for sort of all of the things I've talked about before, constantly going into bars, getting in that fight. Um, She'd written a no-account check before that, and so sort of all these things combined finally sends her to the Idaho State Penitentiary. So she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on September 16, 1964, here are her statistics from Bingham County. Her build was short. She was born in Fort Washakie, Wyoming, born on August 23rd. And here it says 1938. She sort of had variable birth dates, but I think I'm pretty sure 1939 was, was the main date. Occupation, as I said, is a clothes sorter. Brown eyes, black hair, listed as a brown Indian complexion, which is such an unfortunate racist way to put that. She is 61 inches tall, so she's about 5 foot 1. She's 132 and a half pounds, 26 years old when she comes in to the penitentiary. Her bertillion just reveals mostly sort of small scars. I think she's got like scars on her knees, a couple on her stomach. She has some vaccination scars and then one scar under her lower lip, but other than that nothing too too worthy of note. Mm. And so unfortunately, just as with many of our female inmates, her time in the prison is just not known. She just sort of goes in and lives her life and does what she's supposed to do. Her behavior must have been good because by October 1965, she places herself before the Board of Corrections for a final release. She didn't. She wanted to wait for a final release rather than for a parole. And so she stated if she got a final release, she wanted to go to a relocation school and study practical nursing. She, in fact, had already filled out the paperwork before even coming to the penitentiary. She wanted to get sort of this nursing training. She admitted to the Board of Correction that she committed the crime. She committed because of her emotional and depressed state of mind after the death of her family. Her money situation, even after this no-account check, um, and I think with the time she'd spent in, she had about $200 on the books. She actually had an oil well in Lander, Wyoming, and then she was also going to receive money from the Veterans Administration after Oscar Meek's death because he, as I said, he was an ex-Navy man. So um, because of his death, she was able to receive money from the VA. So to go back to that oil well, um, Lander is actually just south of the Wind River Reservation. Um, It may have actually used to have been part of it. And so the oil well was probably part of her family's land. um, And she was able to get some, some financial support that way. And so with this money situation that seemed fairly positive, she planned to go back to Fort Hall, where she owned a house. With all of this information, the Board of Correction thought that she was a good candidate for final release, and she was granted a final release from the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 12, 1965. She served one year and 26 days of a three-year sentence. For a $50 no-account check. That's it. You know, a no account check and uh, writing a check without funds. These are ones that people, when I tell them, oh, this was a crime that people got sent to the penitentiary for, they say, like, are you kidding me? Like, I would have been sent to the penitentiary for this. A lot of these women who committed check related crimes were actually put usually on probation first and only ever ended up in the penitentiary because they broke that probation, usually by writing another check. She did indeed return to Fort Hall, where within a few years of her release, she married Ivan J. Tino Sr., who had been a police officer of the Shoshone tribe on the Wind River Reservation. 
Together, she and Ivan had two children, Ivan Tino Jr. and Yolanda. They were divorced by the early 1970s. According to U.S. Social Security records, she applied for Social Security under the name Phyllis M. Wise in January 1977. I couldn't find who this marriage was to, but apparently she was married to someone with the last name Wise in January 1977, but they were divorced because in 1982 she marries a man named Everett Weezer, who is a fellow Shoshone tribal member. During this marriage, and I think perhaps maybe during her other marriages, um, she worked briefly as a certified nursing assistant. So she did go and get that nursing training like she said she wanted to, which is very, uh, I love to see that. But she was mostly a housewife. Between 1982 and her death, she was a member of the Native American church. And according to her, her obituary, she enjoyed traveling to powwows. She loved to do beadwork and she loved to play bingo. Uh-huh. She's just, you know, living her life. Um, she's really turned things around and, and has found things to occupy her time. And I think she really enjoyed this marriage to uh, Everett Weezer. So on Thursday, November 18th, 1999, Phyllis Mae Ute Weezer died in her home in Blackfoot at 60 years old. She was survived by her husband Everett, her sons Legrand and Wayland, and Ivan Jr. and her daughter Yolanda. Um, And as we know, she did survive two of her daughters and a husband. She is buried uh, on the Fort Hall Reservation uh, under the name Weezer. So I think she was very happy in that, that last marriage. That is the life of Phyllis May Mink, uh, who came in in 1964. Nice. Well, good work, Sky. Yeah. Big fascinating. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. believe that you have a heck of a story for us today. Oh boy. Yes, I have inmate Jackson Lee Davis, aka Diamondfield Jack Davis, John Davis, and Frank Woodson, number 672 and number 820. This man has literally had books written about him, so strap in. Uh, This is quite the story. (laughs) There is a lot to it, and it kind of reflects to cases going on today in which people are being exonerated by innocence projects throughout the country. My sources, his inmate files, of course, Idaho Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Sheepman versus Cattlemen on the Spell of the West website, Diamondfield Jack from the Albion Valley Historical Society, and then one of the biggest ones, a book by Max Black called Diamondfield, Finding the Real Jack Davis, which you can find in our gift shop so come check that out uh luckily i got to check cross all my uh research here in this trial with max's work and for the most part we lined up on on all of our dates and times which is such a relief so jackson davis there's a lot of confusion about his his life and his birth and much of it is spurred on by his own storytelling which always included a lot of boastfulness and a lot of tall tales these would eventually and throughout his life tend to get him in trouble and i'm pretty uncertain about his exact birth date 
or his exact birthplace because his death certificate actually states that he was born August 12th, 1863 in New Jersey. He said his father's name was Samuel Davis, and he also stated that he was born in New Jersey and in West Virginia, in two completely different states during the American Civil War. Uh, his gravestone states that he was born in 1864, which is different than his death certificate, and his intake states that he was born in 1870 in West Virginia. So I, it was difficult. I, I dug a ton, and I consulted these other books looking for if somebody else, any other researchers had come across it, and it seems like we're all in the same boat, that it's really uncertain. If he was born in West Virginia... It kind of makes sense because he has names of, of Confederate soldiers. Jackson mm. may have come from the famous Virginia-born Confederate Brigadier General Thomas Jackson, famous from the Battle of Bull Run, in which he got his nickname Stonewall Jackson. Lee, of course, may have come from the Virginia-born General of the Confederate Army Robert E. Lee and Davis. His last name, of course, you have no choice there, but, you know, the president of the Confederate mm -hmm. States of America was... Jefferson Davis, yeah. Well, and that's interesting, though, because West Virginia was actually part of Virginia and broke off yeah. because they wanted to be part of the Union, uh -huh. which um, which is one of my favorite fun facts about, like, all the states ever. And so that's, I mean, of course, that's not to say that there weren't Confederate sympathizers there, yeah. but that's, that's interesting. And I, um, I believe that they did I, that oh. in 1863, which... You know, may have mm. been his birth year, possibly. <laughs> it's just mm, like, right. what? Hmm. Interesting. We know he moved west to make money prospecting. And he did talk about being in Texas and being a ranger at one point and all these different things. I have not been able to figure out if any of that is in fact true or if he made it all up. But he bounced around all these different towns and ended up in working in Silver City, Idaho, in a silver mine. And word was spreading that diamonds were being discovered nearby. And Jack rushed to cash in and, and find these diamonds. And he, he would claim that he found diamonds and found whole caches of them and all this stuff. But it's around this time that he meets John Sparks, who is actually the future governor of Nevada and namesake for the town just east of Reno, Sparks. And uh, he actually, in fact, was a Texas Ranger. And he had gotten into the cattle industry early in the development of the West. And in the 1880s, he purchased all these ranches in the area of northern Nevada and southern Idaho and created the Sparks Harrell Cattle Ranch, which was one of the, the largest in the West. He began purchasing land around lakes and other water sources, and then he would deny access to these for any other ranchers or sheep herders and use the surrounding public lands to graze his cattle, which was genius, but maybe a little unethical, but he made millions of dollars doing this. So Jackson, he starts working for the Sparks Harold Cattle Ranch in the early 1890s. And later, while testifying to the Idaho Board of Pardons, he would explain to the board his past working in the Blackjack Mine in Silver City and then his pursuit to strike it big in San Juan, Colorado, when he was asked by a man named Bill Trotter if he had ever worked around horses. Jack said, yes, but I didn't come back to break horses. Trotter asked me what my name was. I told him it was Jack. A fellow came up and asked him who that fellow was. He says, his name is Jack, he says. He came from the Diamond Fields. I guess we'll call him Diamond Field Jack. I don't think I had that name until 1895. I was not known in, in the Lamoil Valley by that name at all. 
I never went under the alias of Diamondfield Jack. But the rest of his life, like, he was known as Diamondfield Jack pretty much from then on. What was this miner doing for a cattle ranch? Well, after the Civil War, during the Gilded Age, as all these battles were brewing in the West over this undeveloped land, many miners who failed to strike it rich actually decided to try their hand with livestock. And so they spread out in all these undeveloped areas like Sparks had and started grazing cattle and sheep. And it worked at first, but the two grazing groups actually began to compete over grazing fields in public grazing lands. Cattlemen saw the lowly sheepmen with their flocks as intruders, and they considered the sheep and the men who led them as lesser-than creatures who overgrazed the land and polluted waters. They believed that sheep ate too close to the root and then trampled and killed grazing grasses with their sharp hooves. They had to be separated from the cattle grazing grounds, and with many more cowboys than sheepmen, it was an easy task to scare off most shepherds. This sometimes led to violent attacks, including clubbings, dynamiting, poisoning, burning, and even stampeding whole flocks of sheep over cliffs. It was serious business, and shepherds' cabins were burned down. Their whole flocks were killed or scattered, you know, in in these giant ranges. And Texas, Arizona, and Colorado, and, and Wyoming, they were the kind of the epicenter of these battles between sheepmen and cattlemen. Jack Davis found himself in the midst of this battle brewing in southern Idaho in the 1890s. And south of Twin Falls, at the Nevada-Utah border, right near the center split of those two states is this big mountain range. And to the west of the mountain range, between what they call Rock Creek, Shoshone Creek, and Big Creek, was this deadline that split the cattlemen and sheepmen in what was called the Goose Creek Divide, which is just an imaginary line right there just a little west of that mountain range area just north of nevada south of twin falls and cattlemen they got the land west of the divide and the sheepmen got the eastern side and uh, the sparks harold cattle ranch actually hired diamondfield jack as a cowboy to keep the shepherds out of the cattle grazing land he's paid fifty dollars a month and instructed to quote keep the sheep back don't kill but shoot to wound if necessary Use what measures you think best. If you have to kill, the company will stand behind you, regardless what happens. Sage words. Diamondfield Jack, he took his job seriously. Many of them worried that his actions would actually spark an all-out war between the two factions because he was just a boastful man who was a little bit uh, spitfire. On November, <laughs> November 16, 1895, Jack gets into his first confrontation with a sheepman named William Tolman. And Jack had told other sheep herders that if he ever came across old Bill Tolman, he'd shoot him. Well, word got back to Bill, and he decided to come face-to-face with Diamondfield Jack. And he rode his horse up to Jack's camp and approached with a rifle in hand and questioned him about these threats. This turned into an argument, and when Bill appeared he was going to climb down from the horse, Jack actually raised his pistol and shot him. And the Ketchum Keystone, the newspaper, actually stated, quote, The ball from Davis's pistol entered the body of Tolman just above the left nipple and ranging downward came out near the spine under the left shoulder blade. The shooting occurred in the oh. forenoon, but it was late in the afternoon before it became known, during which time the unfortunate man, who was 50 years old, lay helpless upon the ground without aid of any kind. Right after Jack oh. shot him, he just he skipped the camp and headed south across yeah. the Nevada border. 
<laughs> this like right here you you see all these newspapers trying to pick up his uh nickname and they they use the name diamond jack and diamondville dick but his name <laughs> diamondville jack doesn't quite appear until shortly after so idaho's third governor william mcconnell offered a 500 dollar reward for jack's capture and McConnell was the governor that uh, championed Idaho as the fourth state for women to have the right to vote. So go Governor hey. McConnell. Yeah, very interesting fellow yeah. in 1896. But uh, Jack realized that, oh, no, they, they mean business. So he hid out in Wells, Nevada for a few months until January 1896 when he met up with a fellow cowboy named Fred Gleason. He reportedly told Fred he wanted to return to Idaho and turn himself in. So they start heading north. On February 16, 1896, a young sheepherder from Oakley, which is east of Twin Falls, like east of that Goose Creek Range, his name was Ted Severe, and he was visiting the camp of two young Mormon men named John C. Wilson, a sheepherder, and Daniel Cummins, a sheep owner, who had crossed into the cattle side of the Goose Creek Divide. Ted had known these two Mormon men for quite some time and had visited them 12 days earlier on February 4th, 1896. He said that when he came to a clearing above the camp on the 16th, he noticed that the sheep in the camp were scattered everywhere, which was not a usual sight for a well-kept sheep camp. So when he, he got to the camp, the dogs were actually tied up and appeared nearly dead from starvation. But the shepherds were missing. So he searched around the site and finally went into the wagon where he found both young men dead. One was wrapped in a blanket. Both had suffered from gunshot wounds, and he looked around the camp and noted that nothing had changed from his visit on the 4th. It appeared that not long after he had left the camp, someone had come in and killed them. Word spread and the name Diamondfield Jack quickly came to everybody's mind and in one article it noted that quote from all appearances the men were shot while sleeping the shooting occurred at or near the same place where william tolman old bill tolman the 50 year old was shot in the month of november last by a very hard character known as diamond field jack a cowman it continues by explaining the cause of the shooting it is the same old dispute in the case that we have had in times past. The cattlemen claim a range unfenced, not owned by them, and forbid sheepmen from the encroaching on the land so claimed, and have been making a very determined effort by threats through the agencies of hard characters to keep the sheepmen from these lands. It is believed that John Wilson was killed instantly, while Daniel Cummins was shot in the abdomen and actually survived another day or so because he had rolled up his friend John in a blanket and then attempted to write a death note which said if I die bury me take care of and then he listed his sister's names but the rest of the note couldn't be deciphered so he must have passed away soon after that yeah so Governor McConnell actually offered a thousand dollar reward for evidence leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderers of these two young shepherds this this is just on those two men's gravestones it's it's really sad John C. Wilson it says assassinated while on duty sadly in the early springtime did we leave them down to rest away from this cold unfeeling cline safe away among the blessed and then daniel cummins next to it says death is certain the hour uncertain why did they kill them thus pin on death's awful lance why pluck the flower just in budding why didn't they give the boys a chance just like oh so heartbreaking yeah, that is sad yeah, so a thousand dollars in eighteen ninety six, based on inflation, any guesses? 
Uh, I'm gonna say twenty five thousand dollars. That's that was way better. I it's thirty one thousand ninety six dollars and five cents. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I wow. That's a lot of money. So, needless to say, there were a lot of people who reportedly had seen Diamond Field Jack, and you know, one mm, report. Yeah, one report came from Colorado, suspecting that the wicked citizen, as they described him, had been caught, and a photo was sent to Idaho authorities. Wrong guy. Next, in July, word spread that he had been captured in Santa Rosa, California, and the Cache County Sheriff, H.L. Perkins, actually traveled to Santa Rosa, only to the find that it was not the right Jack Davis. And then mm. the yeah, a Boise Statesman article then seemed to uh, up the ante, stating that reward of $3,000 for a murderer of the two sheepmen and a reward of $500 for Davis for his murderous assault upon Tolman. So the amount was... It got up to like $100,000. Yeah, yeah. Essentially. Total. It's so wild. So $1,500 for Fred Gleason and the same for Jack. And finally, February of 1897, both men are captured. Gleason was captured in Deer Lodge, Montana. And Gleason was the guy that Jack was going to go up to Idaho and turn himself in with, right? The other cowboy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was captured Deer Lodge, Montana, while Jack was actually discovered serving a sentence in Yuma, Arizona for aggravated assault. He was in prison already. Well, and both of those are still territorial prisons that are still standing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Gleason, he wasn't in the territorial prison. He was just staying in Deer Lodge. I mm, I just looked I that up. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Were they I both gotcha. in those? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, just just Davis and Yuma, and he had he was sentenced to fourteen months under the name Frank Woodson, and it was stated that in May of eighteen ninety six. Davis was living in Congress, Arizona, and an officer was alerted that this newcomer in town was beating a woman. So the officer actually proceeded to make an arrest of Jack, Frank Woodson, and approached him unarmed. And Jack pulled out a gun, leveled it on the officer, and told him to stop or he would blow the top of his head off. The officer tried to reason with Davis, and a bystander actually handed the officer a pistol. And Davis demanded the officer hand his newly found gun over or he'd shoot. So the officer held his ground and slowly walked towards Davis until he got near enough to hand the pistol over when he pounced on him and wrestled Jack Davis to the ground and made the arrest. And he was charged with aggravated battery and resisting an officer, and he was sentenced for the aggravated battery charge. And, like, right after this happened, the nephew of the officer accidentally discharged his shotgun and shot buckshot into his into his uncle there were a lot of reports that jack had shot the officer and you know everybody was up in arms and then Mm. it was all these arizona newspapers going oh sorry false alarm that that never happened (laughs) yeah uh but you know this doesn't help his case you know he is already kind of seen as a bad man and uh upon his capture the shoshone journal states that these are the men who murdered the sheep herders Cummins and Wilson in Cache County about a year ago. Diamondfield also put a bull into William Tolman a short time before. He's an all-around bad man and should be compelled to stand on nothing and look up at a rope forthwith, thereby saving Cache County a big expense. Whoa. So they're just Dang. saying, hang the guy, like, no questions asked. 
you might know some of the names. William Bora, uh, James Hawley. They were the two lawyers in this case. Good old William Bora. Uh, I learned that William Bora had an affair with Teddy Roosevelt's daughter while he was in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Oh, William Bora. What a what a dude. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, I, I went to Bora High School. I know all about the man. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Go Lions. Okay. So, <laughs> William Bora, he served as a prospector against a uh, prospector. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I've been thinking about oh, mining that... for the last week. As uh, doing that this. would be the best oh. ever is if he just, like, walked into the courtroom <laughs> and was like, Your Honor, and he'd have this little, like, pickaxe. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so... Love the thought. He was not a prospector in any way. He he was the prosecutor (laughs) against Davis and Gleason, while James Hawley served on Jack Davis's defense. So, the trial was full of circumstantial evidence and character testimony. And basically, Bora found all the shepherds that uh, Davis and Gleason had threatened and got them in the room and said, I mean, this has definitely got to be the man. And... He also found all these miners that Davis had gloated to about shooting a shepherd. And, uh, you know, he made a very convincing argument to the jury who took less than two hours to convict Diamond Field Jack to hang for his crime. The defense tried to reason with the jury that it, it would have been impossible for Jack to have ridden from the Sparks Herald camp to the shepherd camp and return in time to have dinner. And Fred Gleason, who was the supposed accomplice who adamantly denied shooting the shepherds with Davis. He was acquitted while Jack Davis, Diamondfield Jack, was found guilty for the same thing. That That's kind of a red flag to me, that why does the jury not see him as also guilty in this crime? Right, right. So they had stated they had been in, in the area and that Jack had fired near a sheep camp up in the air like the a day before but he never killed anyone and he had been at the ranch for days drinking and having a merry time with other cowboys so this would be a, a pretty contentious piece of the uh, entire case for jack's lawyers who would fight to free him from the shadow of the gallows over the following years diamond field jack davis was sentenced to hang on june 4th 1897 and it's noted in the shoshone journal There is but little danger that he will hang, however, as his accessories, before the fact, have unlimited wealth which they will spend to either clear him or take him from the officers of the law. He will keep their secret for his liberty and consideration, but ere the hempen cords jerks him hellward, he will make disclosures that will startle the people of Montana and Nevada as well as Idaho. Hired assassins never die on the scaffold with sealed lips." And so basically, they're saying... What an article. Right, yeah. He's saying that... Uh, what is it? Air the hempen cords drag him to hell? Air the hempen cords jerks him hellward. He will make disclosures. Oh, yeah. Great stuff. Oh, gosh. It's... I... Yeah. The newspaper articles of this are so good. I... Oh, man, I would buy a book that just had Jack Davis newspaper articles in it. <laughs> they were fascinating. 
basically the, the author's stating that the Sparks Herald Company, this giant cattle company, would do anything to save him. And Jack would sit in the Cache County Jail in Albion for nearly two years while his case was appealed through the courts. And while waiting for his date with Destiny, he made hair ropes and dolls for children who visited him in the jail. And he made a lot of friends with a lot of local citizens who came and visited him. Hmm. His appeal was entered, and he was granted life past June 4th. And by August 1898, Idaho's Supreme Courts would deny a retrial and condemn Jack to hang on October 28th, 1898. So, new hanging date. The judge, apparently full of sadness and stating the judgment looked at him and after he said you know i'm gonna condemn you to hang jack just said thank you with this cool and self-possessed air about him and he had spoken seven and a half hours about his life leading up to the killing of the shepherds to a packed audience and petitions were spread to release him after he laid his heart bare on this witness stand and the petitions coming out about two weeks before his hanging stated, one, the evidence against Davis was entirely circumstantial. Two, there's a grave doubt as to his guilt. Three, no portion of the evidence brought Davis nearer to the scene of the crime than about 20 miles, and then he was going in, in an opposite direction. Four, Frank Smith, the principal witness for the prosecution, was interested in securing a one-third portion of the reward of $4,800 offered for a conviction in this cause thus making Smith an unworthy witness, which it was brought up that he had had four different aliases in as many localities in fewer years. So that Frank Smith was not a dependable witness in this whole case. Hmm. And also, the the amount keeps going up, $4,800. What? What? Okay. Hmm. Fred Gleason, charged with assisting Davis in the preparation of the of the same crime for which Davis was tried and convicted and proven to have been the companion of Davis at the time the prosecution charges the crime to have been committed was acquitted on substantially the same evidence which Davis was convicted of. So 439 names were written by citizens in the town and other towns in southern Idaho to release Jack from this. In the meantime, two men actually appeared out of the blue named Jeff Gray and James F. Bauer, who admitted to killing the young shepherds. Hmm. Interesting. This case is just bananas. So they were both early pioneers in Idaho. They were extremely well-liked in southern Idaho and their communities they lived in. And they had both worked for the Sparks Herald Company as cowboys. It was enough for Governor Stunenberg, the newly elected Idaho governor, to reprieve Davis for the hanging and moving the execution date to December 16th as the new trial against Gray and Bowers began. And the idea was, if we convict Gray and Bowers, then we'll let Davis go. So Bowers and Gray, they claimed that the shooting was done in self-defense. They stated that they had met up and were discussing the cattle and sheep wars, and Gray explained that he was heading to a ranch to gather up some horses for his new boss. They crossed paths with a man wheeling a cart and figured it was a sheep man because they knew most of the cattlemen in the area. They followed the cart's tracks and traveled up a hill to look over this little valley where they spotted the camp of Cummins and Wilson. They rode down and met with Cummings and, and Wilson on February 4th, 1896. And those two, they were actually preparing their lunch. And the shepherds invited them into the wagon, these two cowboys. Hey, come on in, have a meal with us. 
Bauer pulled out his new corncob pipe that he had just purchased at a, at a store and climbed into the wagon. And while they were chatting, they asked what they were doing in this side of the divide. And that's when Shepard Wilson asked Bauer who he was. And Bauer told him he worked for the Sparks Herald Company. And an argument followed over the use of the rangeland. And Wilson reportedly said, we have just as much business here as you have. And Bowers responded, I don't think you do, and you don't pay taxes over here, so you don't belong over here. And they started yelling over who had the right, and Wilson jumped to his feet and yelled, you're a lion, son of a bitch, and this brawl ensued. And Wilson and Bauer actually grappled with each other in the death struggle for the possession of a gun. And seeing this, the other shepherd, Cummings, actually reached for a rifle and raised it towards the two grappling in the wagon. Gray, seeing this happen, pulled his gun and fired three shots. The first bullet hit Cummings, who stumbled and dropped his rifle. The next shot hit Wilson in the back to the left of his spine and crossed through his body under his right nipple. The second bullet hit him in the chin and plunged through his chest, cracking his rib, penetrating his lung, and stopping in his liver. Bauer and Gray put the wounded shepherds into the wagon. He gathered up their horses who had startled during the gun battle, and they rode away. And they discussed going to another sheep camp to confess, but worried that they'd actually probably get into another gun battle. So they ended up riding to Deep Creek, where Bauer cleaned his jacket from all the blood from Wilson, who had collapsed on top of him when he was shot in the face and through the lung and liver. And these two cowboys split ways. And Bauer stated that later... He lost his gun about six months before the trial. And in Max Black's book, uh, Max was consulting his friend Dean Buckwitz. And Dean operates a machine shop here in Boise. And he told him about, you know, that he's, he's researching the Diamond Field Jack case and he's writing all these things. And he heard about this, this old gun that was missing that, you know, it might have been the murder weapon. And Buckwitz actually said, you know what? this is really weird, but I think I might have that gun. He had actually found this gun out in the desert and it matched the description. It was this rusted, rusted out gun that had been underwater and maybe under underground for a number of years. And it matched Bauer's gun, which was an 1898 Colt Frontiersman. Max found that only 2,139 of these exact model guns would have been in the United States, and the odds of one being found in the desert matching all of this is pretty crazy. So Mm -hmm. Max also found the site of the shooting and actually found uh, bullets that matched with the gun that Gray had used. Seriously, I recommend Max Black's book which shows some pretty incredible investigation and and research. And his infield investigation is just amazing. Oh, my gosh. And I, you know, as we were just talking about that amazing high you get from finding something that you're researching, I can only imagine how he felt. This weekend, you'll get to hear from him yourself. So all of this is brought up in front of, of a judge. A lot of people saw this as fictional testimony to save davis they thought that it would it was manufactured by the cattle company to get davis off they thought that these were false confessions to clear davis's name at which time gray and bowers would actually state that the murders were done in self-defense and uh you know all all three men would be released 
A corncob pipe was actually brought up as evidence in this hearing against Bowers and Gray, and it's found under the wagon where the bodies were discovered. And later, a member of the prosecution named O.W. Powers, which is a name you're going to hear a lot in the future, he would state, The first thing that raised a doubt in my mind as to the guilt of Diamondfield Jack was an old cob pipe. The pipe was introduced in evidence by the prosecution, and at the time this was done, I happened to be looking in the face of a witness for the prosecution, a man named Bowers. An expression passed over this man's face which showed that he was peculiarly affected. I said then to one of my colleagues that Bowers knew something about that pipe, but the others thought there was nothing to it, and the incident passed over at the time. So despite the confession and their stories lining up, both Gray and James Bowers are acquitted for the crime after only 15 minutes of jury deliberation. Uh, members of the jury were from the community and they knew gray and all the witness testimony showed that he was a very well-respected member of the community and jack's lawyers were busy showing the impossibility for riders to make the trip from the ranch to the kill site and on to the next site in such short amount of time particularly when it's you know february so this helped jack's case but he remained in the Cache county jail awaiting his execution James Holly actually interviewed 11 of the 12 jurors and got them to sign an affidavit stating that they believed that Gray and Bowers were involved with the shooting, but that the shots fired by the said Gray were fired by him in defense of J.E. Bauer and himself. Gray was justifiable in the shooting. So the combination of the new confession and the inability for writers to make the trip brought on considerable reasonable doubt within the community of Jack's guilt. So his trial date is pushed back again until january 1899 so william bora governor stunenberg nearly died while actually crossing a marsh with thin ice attempting to come to albion to hear jack davis testimony in january they listened to jack ramble incoherently professing his innocence but overall saying little and basically hurting his case at one point during uh, William Bora's questioning, he responded, Mr. Bora, you know in your heart just as well as I do that I am innocent of this. You are not prosecuting. You are persecuting a man. And at the same time, you are procuring witnesses and trying to make a name for yourself. And you walk over my grave to do it. Uh, that is one of my favorite quotes. Despite all of this, they refuse to change their judgment. And he's condemned to hang on February 1st, 1899. On January 27th, a Blackfoot man rides into Albion to build the scaffold for the hanging. And for the fourth time, everything was in place to hang Diamondfield Jack. <laughs> His lawyer, James Hawley, makes an application for appeal to the federal court for a writ of habeas corpus stating that Jack Davis was wrongfully and unlawfully detained in the Cache County Jail. And habeas corpus, it's, it's a Latin term for may you have the body, and it's simply defined as a, a court order demanding that an imprisoned individual be brought to the court to show a valid reason for the person's incarceration. So this writ is sent above Idaho's courts to the Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, California, and his neck is barely saved. On February 24th, 1899, a Senate bill is actually passed by the House, which meant that all criminals convicted of a capital offense were to be taken to the penitentiary to be executed. There's this horrible article from the Capitol News titled, Necktie Parties at the Pen. All Future Executions Will Take Place at the Institution. Uh, so yeah. 
Jack finally comes to the Idaho State Penitentiary on February 27th, 1899, as inmate number 672. At 1.30 a.m., he arrives at the Boise Depot, and the warden's report for the day states, The warden, with guards, met the party at the depot and took charge of the prisoner, who was, without delay, taken to the penitentiary, where he arrived without mishap. His intake form... Number 672 is received February 27th, 1899. John Davis, alias Frank Woodson and Diamondfield Jack, County, Casha County, Albion. Term, April 1897. Crime, murder in the first degree. Sentence, to hang. Age, 28 years and 7 months. Born in West Virginia. Occupation, cowboy and minor. Height, 5 feet, 5 and a quarter inch. Complexion, dark. Weight, 152 pounds. Color of hair, brown. Color of eyes, gray. He describes himself as a widower with one boy. And I looked everywhere for Mm. a wife or a child. And uh, let me see here. Father living, but mother died when he was six years old. He left his parents' home when he was nine years old. He had religious instruction and attended Sunday school. He could read and write and had four and a half years of common school education. Former imprisonment, nine months in the Yuma, Arizona Penitentiary. Nearest relative, Charles Davis, is not aware of his present residence. So I'm wondering if Charles Davis was his son. Mm. Fortunately, like all of this, I none of us researchers have been able to find his widow. Mm. Yeah, or I mean his, his wife who passed away or his children. So I'm not sure. Right condition of teeth back teeth mostly all gone upper front tooth gone on right side prisoner wore a dark brown mustache which as you see in his mug shot and on the photos that i'll post he would kind of adorn this mustache throughout his life six and a half size boot worn and he had ten dollars in his person when he uh, was received so december 1899 the supreme court decides that diamondfield jack davis had not exhausted all of his rights in the lower idaho courts before going to the federal court so it's a strange ruling that davis was convicted and sentenced to be hanged by the sheriff subsequently the law placed hanging in the charge of the warden of the state penitentiary it was contended that the old law was repealed and the new law inapplicable being ex post facto Justice Brown remarked that it would make little difference to the accused who executed him, and the decision of the state court was affirmed, giving the sheriff custody of the prisoner. The United States also commenced a suit against the Sparks Herald Company of Nevada in Idaho, charging them with fraud, and Jack was taken back to the Cache County Jail on December 28, 1899. So he sp- uh, was in the yes. prison in February 1899, moved back to the county jail December. In 1900, he had exhausted all of his appeals, and he was rescheduled to hang on July 3rd, 1901. Fortunately for Jack, public opinion was beginning to sway in his favor, and most were beginning to think that he was innocent. He was resentenced again in April 1901. On June 18th, Governor Hunt granted Jack Davis a reprieve until July 3rd, pushing his execution back to July 17th, 1901, so from July 3rd and July 17th, And this allowed the Idaho Board of Pardons to meet one last time on his case. June 20th, 1901, the Lewiston Teller published the following. For several years, the law has been making a feeble effort to put a rope around the neck of Diamondfield Jack Davis. Each time the death sentence was pronounced, some new trick of the ledger domain artist 
came to Jack's rescue. Mm -hmm. This time, Governor Hunt has pulled the string and given Jack a lease on life until July 3rd. This gives the Board of Pardons a chance to say something, and it is probable Jack will set up the wine at the end of their session. In all, the taxpayers are out about $75,000. Oof. Oh, in 1901. Whoa. So when the board met in July, a judge from Salt Lake City, Utah, named O.W. Powers, if you recognize that name, who had formerly been on the prosecuting team with William Bora, came to Cache County to defend Jack Davis. And if you remember the corncob pipe from earlier, he doubted Jack's guilt, and he requested to the board that Jack's death sentence be commuted to life in prison. He stated... It is appalling for the law to take the life of a human creature when so much doubt arises as his guilt as in the present state. Bauer appeared in front of the board and stated the same self-defense story and admitted that he had killed the shepherds. And another member of the prosecuting team turned to Idaho judge, his name was J.C. Rogers, also stated that he had a change of heart. He didn't think Davis uh, could be guilty of the hanging. He stated something that I think resonates with all these exoneration cases today. He says, The case of state against Jack Davis will have to go down with a long line of similar cases found in the books where strong combinations of circumstances has led an honest jury to a false conclusion. The conviction of a man innocent of the crime charged against him. Finally, on July 15, 1901, just a few short hours before Jack was destined to hang for the seventh time, after thousands and thousands of dollars were spent on his case, the Idaho Board of Pardons, Jack's last hope, commutes his sentence to life in prison. He is given another oh new lease gosh. on life and a new inmate number and intake form as number 870. Can you can you just imagine like being in his spot and like just seven times being like you're gonna die and then be like just kidding you're fine and then it's like oh here's a new date for you and then like waking up that day to be like is today the day that i die right and then to like literally have like an 11th hour reprieve over and over and over again it's like a horrible horrible groundhog's day yeah absolutely so after all these years he's in the idaho state penitentiary and basically the feeling toward him had changed. There were a lot of letters written on his behalf. And John Sparks had been elected as governor of Nevada. And in November of 1902, he came to Idaho to defend his old employee. He actually called for Diamond Field Jack Davis's complete release and pardon. And he went in front of the board and admitted that James Bauer had come to him on February 8th, 1896, and admitting to killing the shepherds a week before they were even discovered. Bowers asked Sparks if he should leave Idaho or what he should do, and Sparks told him that they should just stay quiet and out of the deal unless authorities questioned them. When Jack and Fred Gleason were arrested and tried for the murder, Governor Sparks thought they were, there was no way that you would convict an innocent man. You know, he didn't want to violate his employee Bowers' confidence by going to the board, and so he remained quiet of, of everything that he had heard. He met with Bauer, who said that if someone was convicted, he would admit to his involvement, but otherwise he would keep silent. And the uh, former prosecutor turned Utah Judge O.W. Powers also wrote in on Jack's behalf, and this paired with several other calls for his release resulted in his pardon on December 17, 1902, after a 2-to-1 vote by the pardon board. 
And Governor Hunt and Secretary of State Bassett actually voted yes, while the Attorney General Martin said no to his pardon. So he was invited into the warden's office in the prison administration building, and standing at the door, hearing Warden Ballard say, Jack, I received a message from Mr. Bassett, the Secretary of State, and he tells me the board has granted you a pardon. And Davis <clears throat> stood still for a moment, and with a big smile, he said, By Jove, that's good. I am mighty glad of it. And he actually walked out into the prison yard. He raised his hands into the air and shouted, It's all off, boys. I've got it. And everybody cheered. And so he went Ugh. back and gathered up his belongings, and he started towards the state house in a cab with, with his lawyer, James Hawley, and with Warden Ballard. But he only made it to the natatorium across the street where they stopped in to the bar and had several rounds of drinks before meeting with uh -huh. the governor and, and getting his pardon papers. So... Well, I don't blame him, honestly. Right. <laughs> Can I don't imagine? even drink, and I would need a drink yeah. after <laughs> that whole ordeal. seven execution stays. Oh, my gosh. So he spent his first night of freedom for nearly seven years in the Overland Hotel in Boise and asked about his feelings after such a long battle, being sentenced to hang on so many occasions. He said, it would be impossible for me to tell you. A man never loses hope, though, until his wind is shut off. It was hope that kept me from breaking down. And, you know, even upon his pardon, many newspapers actually held on to their belief. And the statesman stated, pardon granted to Idaho man who killed two herders. The Coeur d'Alene Press stated <laughs> they didn't want to belittle the pardon board. Yet it seems strange that a man would have been before seven different courts, each of which affirmed his guilt, and yet be able to convince the members of the pardoning board that he is innocent of the crime of murder for which he was convicted. We do not believe it is good public policy to pardon a man convicted of murder, except upon absolute and incontrovertible evidence of his innocence. And a law that gives a pardoning board power to do so is lame. Davis was pardoned on evidence. Short of that establishing his innocence beyond a doubt, the board made a serious blunder. I don't know. It sounds like the evidence they had was fairly conclusive. I don't know. Right. It's difficult because in the end, the, the only people who really know are those are the shepherds and, and the people who killed them. And uh, right. it really could have been the cattle company who just sent in these two foils to, you know, get Davis off. And we never really mm. will know. But in Max Black's book, he actually did a ton of research on Gray and, and Bauer and uh, he found that they were really high-standing members of the community, and there's no reason that they would have, you know, done that to themselves, you know, possibly landed right. themselves in Diamond Field Jack's place. Well, but the interesting thing there, though, is, so then what did the companies have on them Yeah, that they are then sending them to to take the place like oh so many conspiracies i yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's like the difficulty of this whole thing this is such a crazy convoluted case and if you look at any of the exoneration cases that are going on now across the countries all these people are being released after you know faulty evidence and stuff nothing has changed it's it's the same thing it's it's a person who is guilty in front of the jury because of who they are and like how they hold themselves right. and, and the people that they surround themselves with. And I, I think Jack Davis, you know, he's this outspoken cowboy miner who's got a temper and tells a lot of tall tales and 
it was an easy conviction for them. Obviously, I mean, it took two mm-hmm. hours. So. Right. He made the most of his life after prison. Mm. Pretty much right away, he went to Salt Lake and he met with Judge O.W. Powers and he chatted with him and he thanked him for everything. And, and Powers actually gave him money so that he could travel to Nevada. And he, you know, wished him good luck as he as he traveled south to, to try hitting the mines again. That's what he did. He headed down. He met with his, his friend, the governor. A lot of people actually approached him for rights to write plays and books in his name. And they offered him liberal offers for the rights of his life. But he declined them all. And he stated, I've been on the stage long enough and want to retire for a while. So <laughs> he met with the governor. He spent a fortune defending him through all these years. Uh, Sparks, who spent so much of his money trying to defend and, and get Jack released. And right at this time, word is spreading that gold is being discovered in southern Nevada in the Tonopah Range. So Jack actually follows his rock sniff and nose to the Goldfield District, and at about 1903, he hits it big. He ended up owning ranges near Goldfield, Nevada, in the southern area of the state, which soon became a boom town, and the area produced more than $86 million in gold. By 1904, the town of Goldfield became the largest in the state with a population of 20,000 people. And he created a town. Jack Davis created a town which he named Diamondfield, four miles northeast of Goldfield in 1904, and began selling the 87 lots that he had created. He started sending out this news advertisement in early 1904 calling for people to invest in a town lot and quadruple your money in 30 days. And by April, Jack had spread his mine ownership to South Klondike County, and he was striking it rich all over southern Nevada. He also got married in 1904 to Minnie Williams. You know, many newspapers in the West commented on the marriage and referenced the transformation from a doomed man to a happy husband. And the Salt Lake Tribune posted (laughs) a story on July 7, 1904, titled, Old Cobb Pipe Saves His Life, Man Convicted Murder Now Wealthy. Romance in the career of Diamond Field Jack Davis. And it kind of went through his trials and tribulations. And he uh, really changed it around. He, he had acquired enough money at this time to pay back the judge, O.W. Powers, and then some. And the judge had given him about $25 to leave Salt Lake and go to Nevada. Jack Davis gave Powers about $10,000 in mining stock in the form of 2,500 shares. So he paid him back. (laughs) And uh, uh, throughout his life, he pretty much did this for all the people who helped him during the trial and visited him. And even two (laughs) boys that they rode horses transferring documents right there at the 11th hour to make sure that the sheriff got the form that, no, you can't hang the man. Uh, He actually invited them down to Nevada with him to live with him for a short time and and share with his prosperity and all this. So it's kind of nice. Yeah. So... He had really transformed. He was wealthy. He's well-respected, well-connected, and he's friends with his former employee, the governor of Nevada. And with this success came lots of battles over mining claims. He's arrested in 1906 over a dispute in which men were working on his land, and they claimed that he had drawn a gun. But witnesses actually refuted the claims, and Jack was released after paying uh, a small bond. Things like this, they're pretty common in these mining areas at this time. And I gathered up, you know, about 100 pages worth of articles about Jack's prolific undertakings in the mining fields after his incarceration. And Max does a great job of documenting all of these and then some. 
seriously, if you want to know more, check that book out. The most important moment, I think, in this time period was between 1906 and 1907 when members of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, came into his town and attempted to create a major strike. And most of the unions refused to to join the IWW. And two young members of of an opposing union were chased by a mob of union sympathizers into Jack Davis's office. And Jack, seeing the trouble, he appeared on the scene and upon learning the nature of the trouble, drew a couple of guns from his pocket, chased the bunch half a block down the street. At the Nixon corner, an officer demanded his gun. Diamondfield declared he would kill the first man who attempted to disarm him. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> they, even the sheriff wouldn't mess with this guy. Uh, the IWW, they attempted to stop the distribution of newspapers in the town. And again, Jack went out to the, the corner where the newspapers were being sold, and he stood with his two revolvers drawn, dissuading a whole mob of 300 IWW members and sympathizers to disperse and they they did pretty quickly hmm. and this spurred on more battles and many threats to jack's life it also led to mine owners actually raising wages and improving benefits for miners and in 1907 this restaurant owner was killed by iww members after he had hired a non-union employee so jack had actually along with several others actually witnessed the shooting and he tracked down the killer and made a citizen's arrest of him an all-out war broke loose, so much so that 100 citizens were actually deputized to save the city from the IWW, you know, preventing them from wow. trying to burn the place down or, or kill more citizens. Right. So it was it was a serious lockdown there in 1907. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. And one, actually, while they were on duty, one of the IWW actually popped his head out and shot from an alleyway in the direction of one of these fellas and and jack hearing that he turned around and he started firing blankly down the alleyway and they never actually found out who had a, attempted this killing but uh jack hmm. served as a witness in a trial for the murder of the restaurant owner and he heard that there was a 250 dollars reward out for his death so he got a couple of armed guards that followed him wherever he went. At one point, he was walking with an officer when this drunk IWW agitator actually approached him and started insulting him, calling him all these names, and Jack actually pounced on him. They just started rumbling in there in the streets and rolling around in the streets. And the, the agitator, it sounds like he kicked Jack quite a few times, but uh, officers arrived and actually arrested the agitator and, and took him to jail. Hmm. In the spring of 1908, while he was visiting claims in Rawhide, a group of deputy sheriffs believed to be working for the Western Federation of Miners, another giant mining union. Mm-hmm. They busted Jack Davis and his posse and sent them to the jailhouse for carrying a concealed weapon. And he was actually brought up in the court and found guilty and fined a hundred dollars for this. Of course, he's going to have a gun. Like he's he's worried people are going to try and kill him. We'll see where that goes. By 1909, all of these exploits, all of these claims, running all these different mines in southern Nevada and elsewhere, Minnie decides that she wants to end it with Jack. And she claims that he had abandoned her and had failed to provide for her. So she actually files for divorce in January 1909. 
Not long after that, Jack is arrested for jumping property, which is basically mining in somebody else's land that he didn't own. And, you know, he admitted, oh, I didn't realize anyone owned it. And so they dropped the charges and he kind of continued his exploits. Now without a wife. June 4th, there's this great article titled Diamond Field Jack Davis in appreciation of the many sterling virtues of one whose reputation is that of a bad man. And it documents his life and his storytelling really well and he had visited los angeles and so this this is it's racist there are some racist things involved but it's it's kind of a funny story so the famous gunman has returned to civilization from the wilds of mexico having added to his long series of adventures some exciting adventures with the yaqui when diamond field jack happens to be in the hotel lobby relating his adventures you can't tear a bellboy away from the bench with a chinese war gong he is a real border character, compared to whose feats the greatest moving picture hero is only a spoiled film. He has been a cowpuncher, a gunman, a revolutionist, a miner, a millionaire, and has just come from the fierce Indian fight. He was on his way, they say, to visit one of the new mining properties in an isolated region of the coast when the Yaqui fell upon the party. They were riding horses with pack animals when the savages burst out upon them with a sudden and furious attack from ambush. Jack is an old border fighter. Repulsing the first attack, he rapidly entrenched his little band. Indians and white men settled down to a long, nerve-wracking siege of snipe shooting. Every time a hand showed, a crack of a rifle answered. The white men were besieged for two or three days of hot fighting. The fight ended amazingly with a tame and astonishing why, howdy do, from the Redskins. It seems that Jack, sometime during his adventurous career, had done the Yaqui chief a favor. When the Yaqui came near enough distinctly to see who the white men were, Jack was recognized and the fight was called off. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Like, how much of this? Uh, he must have been quite the storyteller. But uh, later in the article, mm-hmm. it says, uh, speaking of women, Reminds the writer that he never remembers Diamond Field Jack Davis telling a smutty story or using vulgar and indecent language. How many of your acquaintances, even those who were above the average, can you say that of? And it's, you know, it just kind of is a telling sign of his evolution as as somebody in the limelight. You know, as they're talking about this former bad man going to be hung and now talking about how amazing his stories are. But on March 14th, 1913, an article in Salt Lake City, Utah, proclaimed Diamondfield Jack Davis is killed in Mexico. Man whose trial formed <laughs> one of the most interesting pages in Idaho history is dead. And he was reportedly lined up against a wall and shot to death by Mexican Federals oh. in Lower California. Because, you know, between 1910 and 1920, Mexico is, is in a, a brutal revolution. And Jack mm. was suspected of aiding the rebels. So that is hmm. the end. Wow. Not really. On July 12, oh, 1913, Diamond Jack me. registers into the Semlo Hotel in Salt Lake City. He was never killed. He actually did re- <laughs> relate that when he got word about his death, it helped because he knew that there were federal soldiers from Mexico looking for him in South Sonora where he was mining. He and his companions got the drop that soldiers were coming after him, so he escaped heading north across the border, traveling by night and resting during the day. And he actually laughed in the hotel lobby when when he read the report about his death. 
Later that year, he actually nearly is killed by IWW members who jump him when he's in, in this Montana auto supply house in Butte. And Jack, he went in. He was going to meet with a manager to get an old friend of his uh, job when these three men come in, and one of them asked to buy ammunition. One of the members turned to Jack. He said, now you son of a bitch. We've got you, and whipped out his gun. And Jack actually jerked his knife out of his pocket, grabbed the man's arm, and they wrestled to the ground. And Jack stabbed the man in the kidney. And he said, I thought my time had come. I kept hold of his coat sleeve, and from the floor I saw the flash of the red streak buttons of the IWW. I kept squirming and lunging at the three men, the other two having run up as soon as I struck the floor. I kicked with all my might. After the shot, I think I gave one of the men a good cut with my knife. I spit out a tooth, which the bullet hit. Then I broke loose and ran out the back way. So Jack's face, it was just completely smeared from blood, and there was a bunch of blood dripping from a hole in his jaw. And he yelled, get a gun. I'll see about this proposition. But his friends were like, no, 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 no. And they held him back, and they got him in a taxi and, and drove him to the emergency room. And he ended up surviving from this again. And, you know, it's... There's so much excitement in this man's life. And after this, he continued mining, kept finding money. And at one stake of his land, they actually struck oil. So, you know, he should have had so much. Unfortunately, he uh, it sounds like he may have gambled away some things in Las Vegas towards the end of his life. Finally, on December 28, 1948, while strolling through the streets of Las Vegas, Nevada, Jack stepped down off a curb and was struck by a taxi driver who was backing his car up. On his way to the hospital, he told his friend that he would be fine and that he'd lived to be at least 100 years old, and he was put to rest in a hospital bed where he passed away on January 2, 1949. And his obituary in the Deseret News of Salt Lake from January 6, 1949 reads, Funeral services were conducted for Jackson Lee Diamondfield Davis, 85, last of the West Bad Men, Wednesday at 11 a.m. at the Bunkers Brothers Chapel. The colorful figure of Nevada's mining boom died Sunday at Clark County Hospital after being struck by a taxi cab. Davis is said to have made several fortunes and lost them in addition to over a million dollars left to him by his father. He was born in New Jersey 85 years ago and moved to Texas as a young man. His career involved such things as walking out of the Idaho State Prison with a parole seconds before he was scheduled to be executed for murder. He claimed to have been a leading figure in at least one Mexican revolution. An institution in the early days of Goldfield, Nevada, he was closely identified with such mining camps as Rawhide, Bullfrog, Rhyolite, Tonopah, and other camps that made Nevada's past so colorful. Davis has no known survivors. He was buried by old friends at the Woodlawn Cemetery, the Reverend Thomas Daly of the United Lutheran Church officiating during the services. And that is the crazy life and career and repeated incarcerations and oh mining boom, uh, the town being named after him. I forgot to tell you, he was elected mayor of his own town as well. Uh, <laughs> That is, it's such a wild life. That's so funny. And there's yeah. good reason why so many books are written about him. Like, it, oh, what a story. Right. I guess I always assumed there was, like, more to his, and not to say that there isn't a lot, but, like, I always assumed his crime was, like, really heinous based on, 
sort of how popular he is. Right. Um, and it's like, uh, I mean, I think it's it's horrible that it seems that he didn't actually do it and he was going to be killed for it. But yeah, that is, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel a little bit crazy that. It it was a lot of work to research this man's life, and it was so yeah. fascinating. And I just hope that I have half as interesting a life as Jack Davis did. <laughs> oh man! And and think of all the things that he did that aren't written about that I you know that right. we don't know about. And did he have a family? Did he have children? Did he have a, mm-hmm. a wife that passed away before? Was he in the the Texas Rangers, you know, how involved was he in mm. the Mexican revolutions? I started going through, uh, in college, I studied Ricardo Flores Magón and and his brothers who were anarchists in the Mexican revolution. And they produced their own newspaper. And I started going through that to see if maybe they mentioned him at all, but I, I couldn't find him. And they were located in like Southern California and right there on the border. So, ah. Mm. Uh, I really want to know. There's got to be more to his story, and maybe there'll be a, a another addition to another episode in the future if I ever come across more about him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, if you've listened to this point, I appreciate you all. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, on Saturday, you can listen to our Stool Pigeon Saturday with Max Black as he discusses his adventures researching this and we can kind of discuss if he's come across anything more since his uh, publishing of this book so definitely if you want to learn more yeah come come visit our gift shop purchase that book it's fantastic it goes through everything and there's a lot more that i didn't even touch on and especially in the trials i just kind of tried to breeze through it to keep you under three hours today so (laughs) all right sky well thank you so much and uh great work and uh yeah do your own time do your own number we'll see you all next week if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast if you're interested in more old idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode Follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.